Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Reiner Friedrich, Senior Group Leader and Professor at the Friedrich Miescher Institute for Biomedical Research. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Friedrich. It's a pleasure. So could you please first just talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and when you thought you might want to have become a scientist? Yeah, so I would say my, my childhood was non-spectacular. I, I grew up in what I would call a normal family in northern Germany. I would say my childhood did not really determine myself to become a scientist, to, perhaps to the contrary. My, my parents are actually scientists. My dad was a physicist. Uh, my mother was a science teacher. But up until I was 18 or so, I had no idea what my, my dad is actually doing. He never talked about his work when he came home. So he didn't influence me. So if there was any influence from my parents, I, I would say is that they left me alone. So as a child during high school, I had a broad range of interests, played the guitar, did sports, read actually a lot of books. So literature was one of my main interests. Uh, and also I was generally interested in science, but there was nothing that determined me to become a scientist. And then towards the end of high school, my teachers recommended that I become a theoretical physicist. <laughs> Do you have any idea what that was based upon? Well, uh, I mean, I took physics as a major in high school. Uh, in German high school, you have to specialize in two areas. So one was physics and the other one was was actually literature, a very unusual combination. And they, the teachers just thought I have a talent for physics. And yeah, I never really did what the teachers did. So eventually I ended up to become a, an experimental biologist rather than a theoretical physicist, but, but at least science was correct. But then there was this thing in Germany, there was an army draft, and uh, at that time it was actually a pretty long period of time, and, and I didn't want to join the army, so I did the civilian service instead, which was almost two years. So during that period, I actually had a lot of time to think what I, what I really wanted to do. I decided in the end I will definitely try science, but it's not going to be physics, but biology. Yet I wanted to explain, to understand phenomena of life. And, and therefore, I actually wanted to think like a physicist about biology. So biophysics was what I wanted to try out. What were you doing in the civilian service and what kinds of things were you reading or, or thinking about? This was totally disconnected from a scientific career. I worked in environmental protection and I worked at an institution where we just did manual physical labor, sort of. We went out and cut trees and uh, planted other trees and things like that. We bred rare species of birds and then let them go out in the wild and this kind of thing. And the people I had to do there were, were people that a scientist usually never met. Actually, I was the first among the 50 or so civilian service people there who actually had a full high school degree. So most of the others were carpenters and uh, uneducated people from a scientist's point of view. So, so this was a completely different life experience. But anyway, I had time to think and then I thought, okay, let's become a biophysicist. And then when, when this was over, it turned out I couldn't just go to university and start biophysics because you can enter biophysics programs only once a year. And I, I finished the civilian service just 180 degrees out of phase. So I, I still had half a year or more to, to do other things. So I enrolled for literature and philosophy and did a few things there, made sure I got away from home. So so this was more important than, than what to study to, to get <laughs> away from home. And then eventually I started to enroll in, in science. 
But still, initially, I took a broad interest. I visited chemistry classes, physics classes, mathematics, and then I figured out really science is what I want to do, and and life sciences is also what I wanted to do. And then I have to say that the general interests I have today are still very much in line with the interests I had 20 years ago or so. So that's actually remarkable. Uh, I was completely naive at that time, but but still, my main desire was to understand complex biological systems and perhaps the most one of the most complex systems is definitely the brain and and that really fascinated me so i was basically fascinated by nature and wanted to understand these these phenomena in nature and and that's still my desire today so you did eventually enroll in graduate school at the university of freiburg uh yes the programs in germany at that time were actually quite different from the american programs so you, you enroll and you already chose a subject. So in my case, it was biology from day one up until your master's degree. And with the master's, you leave the program and then you enroll in a different program for a PhD. Ah, I see. So is the master's mostly coursework and not as much research? The master's is coursework all the time. And it can happen. That, and then there's a, a thesis project, usually half a year, one year at the very end. But for some students, really, uh, they see a lab from the inside only after four or five years when when they think about a, a master's project. And what about you? Yeah, I was lucky. At that time, the universities were really overcrowded. And then when I entered my third year, all the courses I wanted to take were just overcrowded and I didn't get in. And then I thought, okay, I have nothing to do this year. Let's just knock on, on the door and see if I can do a project in the lab. And that's what I did then when I started my first year. So the guy gave me a project and I was just more or less left alone to, to do something. It had to do with the biophysics of Drosophila flight and how Drosophila use visual input to control the certain flight maneuvers. And this was just so much fun. This is, I would say, when you ask me, when was the point in your life that you decided to become a scientist? This was clearly uh, when I realized, okay, this is what I want to do. Work on fascinating problems, have ideas and try them out in the lab. Huh, cool. Okay, so, so after your master's, you then enrolled in the PhD program at the University of Tübingen. I was at the Max Planck Institute in Tübingen. Yeah. So Max Planck is not allowed to hand out degrees. So officially I get my degree from the university, but the thesis was done at, at Max Planck. Okay, and you worked with Sigron Korsching? Sigron Korsching and then Friedrich Bonhoeffer. So when I started, Sigron Korsching was, was officially my supervisor, but like three weeks or so after I started, she got an offer from the University of Cologne for a professorship. She did not have a tenured position at, at Max Planck. At Max Planck, most people don't have tenured positions at Max Planck. So, so for her, this was the call, right? So, so she took that position was a great position, but it means that she moved away, and then I was left behind. So most of my thesis, I supervised myself more or less. Uh, <laughs> so you've been left alone for quite a long time, huh? Yeah, for most of my thesis, and uh, it was really generous, I have to say, from from Friedrich Bonhoeffer, who was the head of the department. He just uh, allowed that to happen. So he gave me the freedom and said, okay, you're on your own. If you fail, it's your problem. Otherwise, I'm happy. So he gave me that freedom. And that, and that was wonderful. It was again, like this first time I entered the lab and this guy just gave me a project and left me alone. So it was just you? Did you have lab mates? Not people who worked on anything related. There was another guy in the same, in a similar position. He also started with Seagram, but he did something completely different. I did imaging experiments to measure odor evoked activity patterns in the olfactory bulb. And this guy did in situ hybridization to look for gene expression patterns. So this was totally different.
We could talk to each other really well, but experimentally we were completely on different tracks. And otherwise there was a huge number of people around, but they were all developmental biologists. They had nothing to do with uh, neurophysiology. So in that sense, I was not alone as, as far as social contacts go, but I was quite alone as far as my scientific project goes. Okay, so getting into the science of what you worked on uh, in graduate school, one of the major questions in the field at the time was whether or not olfactory information was encoded in discrete patterns within the olfactory bulb, forming a sort of chemotapic map similar to the kind of tonotomic maps or other various forms of maps that are, exist in other parts of cortex. And in 1997, you published a paper where you filled individual glomeruli with a calcium-sensitive dye and imaged their activity in response to different odorants. First of all, I'm even more impressed now that I know that you were working essentially all by yourself. Those are pretty technically difficult experiments. Yeah, actually getting there, I would say, was not a straight path to get these experiments to work. But then uh, it turns out that once you know how to do it, it was actually not so difficult to do. But this is often the case with scientific projects. It, it was new, yes, but then once I, I figured out how to do it, I have to say it's probably easier than to patch clamp a neuron in a living animal or something like that. So yeah. it was a time when, when people took, for example, patch clamping to dendrites and later on to in vivo brains and so on. This is technically more difficult. But there was a history. And what I had to do, there was little history. In fact, it's not quite true. There, there was a guy before myself in the lab. He and Sigrun Korshing figured out how to load this calcium indicator into the olfactory receptor neurons in a living animal. But they then never got a calcium signal and concluded that the method is not working. And then I went back a step and, and did something completely. I, I used a different approach uh, and I used voltage-sensitive dyes which are notoriously noisy to work with and have other problems. And then eventually I got this to work with the voltage-sensitive dyes. And during that process, I learned so much about the preparation, about the setups, how to build the best setup and this kind of thing, that I thought, okay, now with all these experiments, maybe let's go back to the calcium indicators and give it another try. Then it worked. So what was the problem? Why didn't it work for them the first time? I think there, there were just lots of little problems with the whole experimental procedure. But this I had worked out on the way when I got these voltage-sensitive dye experiments to work. And then I, I could capitalize on that to use the calcium indicators. Okay, so what did you find about the olfactory bulb in those experiments? So I, when I started this, it was kind of accepted that somehow the information about an odor is encoded in a, in a fairly complex pattern of activity. But exactly how these activity patterns are organized and how the information is represented was completely unclear. In the visual system, for example, you can record from a neuron in visual cortex, like Hubel and Wiesel did. Suppose you are a graded student, you do the first recording uh, from a neuron in visual cortex, and then you want to stimulate the cell somehow. And the movies uh, from Hubel and Wiesel, how they just wave a pencil in front of a cat's eye or so. so. So you would do something like this. And when you do it, you fairly quickly figure out probably that there are some cells that respond only when you stimulate them in a certain receptive field or when you move the pencil from left to right, but not from top to bottom, this, this sort of thing. So you quickly come up with certain stimulus features to which these cells are tuned. And in our faction, people had done similar kinds of experiments and then threw a lot of odors at the nose. And the cells would respond to some of them, but not to others. Uh, but it was completely unclear how a receptive field may look like for a cell in the olfactory bulb or, or how these cells may be tuned. And this was just very difficult to explore when you record one cell at a time 
and only a few odors or so. Now with this imaging method, I could look at many glomeruli simultaneously and stimulate them with many different odors. And, and that really helped. So then I got population activity patterns across this array of glomeruli and those I could analyze then. So then I could ask, for example, questions not like how is this glomerulus tuned, but how is the entire pattern that is activated by a certain odor related to the pattern that is activated by another odor. So I could compare patterns rather than single glomeruli or neurons and do this kind of analysis. And this really told us a lot because then we could relate uh, those patterns basically to certain chemical features. And then something fell out of these analysis. So, so we found that that certain chemical features of odors are represented by certain components of activity patterns. A single glomerulus may respond to, to many different stimuli. And another glomerulus may respond to another set of stimuli, etc. But then when you compare 100 glomeruli, you find that there are, ah, there are 10 or so of those that have different patterns that respond to different sets of stimuli. But there's a subset of stimuli for which these response profiles overlap. And then you can take out of those patterns across these 10 stimuli, you could say, okay, they represent something that is common to this set of stimuli. So can maybe give it a specific example of what's the specific kind of chemical feature that you found, which was shared across different stimuli? So for uh, we did all of this in zebrafish, and a class of natural odorants for zebrafish are amino acids. So I went through all these amino acids, and then I found that there are some glomeruli that always respond when there's a basic side chain in the amino acid, arginine or lysine. They, they have a positively charged side chain. Or others would respond preferentially when there is a short side chain with an aromatic residue at the end, something like phenylalanine or, or tyrosine. Mm -hmm. But all of the individual glomeruli would also respond to some other things. So some of the glomeruli responding to phenylalanine and tyrosine would also respond to arginine or alanine or something else. But there's a bunch of glomeruli where these response profiles overlap specifically for phenylalanine, tyrosine and other aromatic stimuli with other aromatic residues. So then we could actually find some kind of mapping between chemical space and the neural space in which it was represented. But the neural space at that point was still abstract because it was basically a matrix of responses. And we knew there are glomeruli for which they overlap these responses, but, but it was still in an abstract matrix. And now the nice thing was also that we had an imaging technique, right? So, so we could actually map these groups of glomeruli back onto the olfactory bulb. And then we found that there is actually a, a cause, a tendency for those glomeruli to be concentrated in certain subregions. So then we actually discovered something that you could call a chemotopic organization. So if you ask me now, my view on this has actually not much changed since 1997 or whenever. We observed this, but I, I'm not sure at this point if, if there's actually a a functional meaning to this. This this could just be uh, some form of epiphenomenon because this Spatial organization is by no means as clear-cut as, the, for example, the maps that you have in the visual system or in the auditory system or in essentially any other sensory system. Like it might just be slightly more efficient from a wiring point of view, but it's not really 
fundamental to how the brain is computing anything. Possibly. I mean, the most extreme hypothesis is others worked a lot on how the axons of the receptor neurons that express the same odor and receptor, they project to one single glomerulus. And many people worked out the mechanisms by which these axons actually find their target glomerulus. And this has a lot to do with the odorant receptor they express. So it is theoretically possible that neurons expressing an odorant receptor that recognize similar chemicals may actually also end up in similar positions in the olfactory bulb because their receptors are somehow related to each other. Yeah. So if that's true, then, then the map could really be an epiphenomenon. And that's actually an issue that ever since has been discussed intensely. And I don't think we as a community have converged onto, onto a common consensus uh, at that point. So you went on and did a postdoc in Jill Laurent's lab at Caltech, where you continued to study the olfactory system. And in 2001, you published a really interesting paper where you looked at the firing patterns of another type of olfactory neuron called a mitral cell. In your paper, you demonstrated that the representation of odorants in the mitral cell ensembles changes continuously throughout the length of a stimulus presentation, progressively reducing the similarity between representations of related odors, therefore making each odor's representation more specific over time. Could you just talk a little bit about what did people think was going on beforehand and how this process works in a little more detail? Yeah. So first of all, the representation does not change throughout the presentation of, of the stimulus. This is something that Gilles lab actually observes in the insect, in the local olfactory system that they change uh, for a fairly long time but eventually they converge to a steady state and then I actually imported the zebrafish to Gilles lab and Gilles again was one of these people who, who were very open-minded about uh, crazy organisms and, and experiments so he, he allowed me to work on the zebrafish and I saw that these representations actually converge faster and they may actually even converge very fast onto a steady state. It's hard to say because during these experiments and also still, we apply a stimulus that ramps up slowly. So if you were able to make a fast stimulus, it may actually converge fast. But then you're absolutely correct that one outcome of the computations in the olfactory bulb is that patterns evoked by similar odorants become decorrelated. When you look at the input side of that means the inputs to the glomeruli, two similar odorants would evoke very similar overlapping patterns of glomerular activation. Because of the reasons that we discussed earlier that they have sharing chemical features. And exactly. Yes, exactly that. And then in Gilles' lab, I tried to take the next step and look at the output side of the olfactory bulb. So I recorded with electrophysiology from these microcells, the output neurons, and then I found that this overlap is actually substantially reduced. And as a consequence of this, it becomes easier to find a simple method, a simple classifier to distinguish between the representations of, of similar stimuli. So this to me was an interesting discovery. There was no hypothesis or anything around that would have predicted that. So what most people thought at the time is that the olfactory bulb works pretty much like a retina. And one basic operation that the retina does is a contrast enhancement. So if you stimulate the retina with, with a stimulus that contains some change in luminance, an edge or so, the retina would, would make this edge sharper. Now, if you would translate that to the olfactory bulb, it could increase the contrast in glomerular activation patterns. But this is actually not what we saw. What we saw is that there's something else going on, and it was actually quite, again, it was, it was impossible to figure out what exactly is going on by just looking at the response of a single neuron or multiple single neurons. Only when we then started to analyze 
these responses as patterns again, we found this decorrelation phenomenon. This was really quite intriguing to me at the time, but it was also a tough nut because uh, understanding the mechanism behind this took us many years, and I, I think we still don't fully understand it. So then when I started my own lab, I, I first did different things and then came back to, to that. And what I can now say about it is, first of all, a contrast enhancement mechanism cannot explain it. In fact, if you would just do a contrast enhancement, if anything, you would do the opposite. You would make overlapping patterns more overlapping rather than less overlapping. What's the intuition behind that? It depends actually in what way the patterns overlap. So a contrast enhancement mechanism would make strong responses stronger. So that would be on one side of the edge and weak responses weaker, that would be on the other side of the edge. And as a consequence of this, the difference between one side and the other side of the edge becomes enhanced. That enhances the contrast. So if you now translate that to chemical space where you have different chemical features. If you translate that to, to glomerular activation patterns, you, uh, contrast enhancement would make strong responses stronger and weak responses weaker. Now suppose that the overlap is mainly in the strong responses and the differences are mainly in the weak responses. Then by contrast enhancement, you would actually sort of strengthen the overlap and weaken those components of the patterns where the differences are. And that's actually the case in the olfactory system. The, the overlap is strongest in the glomeruli that respond strongly, at least in the zebrafish case by, with our odors. So in that sense, a, a contrast enhancement would actually, if anything, do the opposite of a decorrelation. Yeah. So then I had a, had a mathematician in the laboratory, a very gifted guy, Martin Wichert is his name, and, and he took a theoretical approach. And what he could show is that a feedback circuit if you have neurons that have an output and that output is fed back into the network, that such feedback circuits can actually produce an efficient decorrelation if that feedback is quite sparse. So if the synaptic connectivity between these neurons is not dense but sparse, it's, it's not so easy to develop an intuition for why this is, but it's a strong phenomenon. You can, you can prove it mathematically. So he derived theorems to, to show that this is a necessary consequence of such feedback circuit. And now it turns out that the cellular architecture of the olfactory bulb is such that uh, you indeed have this sparse feedback. So the microcells themselves or cells they project to project back to the olfactory bulb? Well, it's actually all within the olfactory bulb. You, you have a population of interneurons, they're called the granule cells, and they are the most numerous population in the olfactory bulb, in the deep layers. They receive input from the microcells, and they feed back inhibition to the same and other microcells. And it has been known for a long time that, that the connectivity between these granule cells and the microcells must be very sparse because there are generations of people who try to record with two patch pipettes from connected pairs of mitral and granule cells. And most people never found a single connection. There's only one paper in the literature by Jeff Isaacson where they describe a few connections. So this is actually exactly a very sparse feedback circuit. And then we did some modeling to predict how responses should look like, what, they, what the property of the, of the responses should be if decorrelation is driven by such a circuit as opposed to other possibilities. And those models really fit the experimental observations quite well other models don't. So we, we think this is the most likely uh, mechanism to produce a decorrelation. So if your prediction would be that if you could somehow interfere with the synaptic transmission between the granule cells and mitral cells in the olfactory bulb, that this decorrelation effect would be knocked out? It should be reduced, yes. 
So there's another essential component, which is just thresholding. Neurons are threshold devices, right? So if, if you have an input that is not sufficient to evoke an action potential, that input would never be translated in an output. And only when the input becomes strong enough, the cell starts to generate an output. So that alone produces a little bit of a decorrelation. Now, when you mess up with a granular cell network, you lose the recurrent part, but uh, the thresholding is still there. So the decorrelation should be reduced, but perhaps not completely abolished. But so far, uh, we haven't been able to find a genetic method a genetic way to selectively perturb the granular cells. We have done this with other interneurons in the olfactory bulb and could then manipulate those uh, with heterodopsin, channelodopsin, stimulate, inhibit these cells, look at what their functions are. But exactly for the granular cells, we do not have a genetic handle yet. So in 2012, your lab established a new protocol for optogenetic stimulation in the zebrafish using something called a digital micromirror device, or DMD, which I think is the same basic technology that's in a lot of projectors. Is that right? In, yes. In the high-end projectors, uh, they use DMDs, yes. So this device, you can use it to produce light patterns with spatial and temporal resolutions in the micrometer and sub-millisecond range. Could you talk about your reasons for, for building this setup with a DMD? I'm familiar with people maybe using these in retinal stimulation, but I think yours is the first to use it for optogenetic stimulation. Yeah, so this actually goes back a long way because when I was a grad student and a postdoc, this was a time when the olfactory system started to boom and many people became interested in it. And there were two camps, more or less. So one camp suggested that all the information is in the spatial patterns and another camp uh, suggested that it's temporal coding, but many people in those camps didn't really talk to each other and didn't really understand each other. So for me, there was never a, a discrepancy between these two, two possibilities. So at that time already, I thought it would be great if we would be able to manipulate either the spatial or the temporal components of activity patterns independently. And then when optogenetics came along, it was obvious that this was a method that could potentially achieve this. So, so if you can control the activity of neurons by light and you could control individual neurons independently, you should be able to dictate patterns of activity onto a population of neurons that you can then manipulate either in space or in time. And I thought, great, optogenetic has this method, uh, this, this potential, but there was a no technical device around that allowed us to do this, to control activity of different neurons in space and time independently. So most people would just flash a uh, blue light onto the whole population of neurons and then you activate them all synchronously which, by the way, is a very non-physiological way of, of activating neurons. And then there were these micromirror arrays around for many years, and we thought, yeah, this is the ideal device to do that. So we just got one of those developer's kits and then integrated them into one of our two-photon microscopes, and then we could use the two-photon microscope to stimulate the neurons in space and time as, as we wanted. And this really was a great device. We are using it every day still. What kind of resolution can you get with this device in terms of specifically in Z, I would imagine, is, is difficult to get to work? The resolution is essentially given by the optics of the microscope. So we have not fully exploited the resolution. So we have a lateral resolution of somewhere like between two and three microns or so. 
And the Z resolution is probably five, six, seven microns, something like that. But the reason why this is already overkill is that the resolution in the end in a real life experiment is actually not limited by the resolution of the optical stimulus, but it's really limited by the morphology of, of the neuron you want to stimulate. So what we usually try to do is shine the light on the soma or the axon hillock of, of a neuron if you want to control the action potentials because that's where the action potentials are, are elicited normally. But even if you shine a light on the dendrite, you will depolarize the neuron, not quite as much as at the soma, but substantially. So therefore, you can essentially influence that neuron throughout a fairly large area that's defined by the dendritic tree of that neuron. And, and therefore, it doesn't matter if you have two or, or three non, uh, microns lateral resolution, if the dendrite is 50 microns or something in diameter. So that's, that limits your resolution. And then if you have two neurons with overlapping dendrites, it's very hard to stimulate one but not the other. So the resolution is essentially limited by morphology of the neurons more than the optical resolution of the device. Hmm. And so finally, could you just give us a preview of what you plan to talk to us about when you come to Stanford? So there are basically two options. One is, and that's a more likely one, that I will probably take a bigger perspective on the olfactory bulb and look at the olfactory bulb as a computational device. Think about what it is good for, what may be the general computations that the olfactory bulb wants to achieve. This is probably pre-processing for pattern classification by higher areas. And then go into the into the specific computations and the cellular mechanisms by which computations such as decorrelation but also others are achieved by neurons. So there are essentially two computations that we looked at, and that's the most likely focus of the talk. The other one could be that in the last couple of years we have been focusing more and more on the one of the next higher areas in the olfactory system. In the zebrafish, it's got the unspectacular name DP, but it's the direct homologue of olfactory cortex in mammals. And this area is assumed to be and likely to be a, a memory storage area. So we have done some work on this to understand how activity patterns that leave the olfactory bulb are transformed in this area and, and represented there. Yeah, then I will probably throw in also a few data from, from 3D electron microscopic approaches. Oh. where we now reconstruct the anatomy and connections between many neurons, maybe even all the neurons, in an olfactory bulb. Oh, cool. So this is the serial block phase electron microscopy yeah. approach following Wilfried Denk's pioneering work that we have now applied to small zebrafish. Usually we work on the adults, so we have now done this in the larva. We have essentially reconstructed all the neurons in an olfactory bulb of a larva. Based upon the work that you did in understanding how different odors, which were strongly correlated at the level of the glomeruli, become decorrelated at the level of microcells, that it's not just any old sparse feedback between the glomeruli, which would lead rise to that kind of decorrelation, but that there should be a certain relationship between the pattern of glomeruli, which are activated between those two orders, and where, if you think it's granule cells, which granule cells and who they're actually connected to. Is that right? Not necessarily. So even if you have completely random connections, as long as they're sparse, they will produce a decorrelation. Hmm. And the decorrelation by random connectivity can already be quite substantial. Now, of course, what you say is correct, that you can optimize the decorrelation by specifying your connectivity depending on the kind of patterns that you want to decorrelate. This is actually an interesting question to see if we find any kind of organization in that feedback that may relate to the activity patterns that come in 
or if it is actually if that connectivity is indistinguishable from from random connectivity hmm. that's certainly one of the questions we would like to address by reconstructing all these cells yes Okay, so in closing, we have a series of short answer questions. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a graduate student, and I really mean you specifically, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, be curious. <laughs> okay. And since a lot of your research involves odor stimulation, what is your favorite smell? So the stimuli I use are not... Uh cannot be perceived by myself because they are <laughs> water-soluble stimuli for fish, right? Yeah. And they are usually not volatile. Mm. Uh, but otherwise, my favorite smells would be, I would say, smells of, uh, of nature when you go out in a forest, fresh air, and smell the forest. And if I were to ask you what your first experiment was, what pops into your head? I would say the first experiment where I really thought and designed experiments was actually as an undergraduate when I, when I worked in this, this lab for half a year that had to do with, with the Drosophila flight, biophysics of Drosophila flight. What was it? Oh, I tethered flying flies. And then I stimulated them on a computer screen, a fast computer screen with different patterns, such as diverging bars. So that stimulated approach to an object to the fly. And then I measured the flight response, so, so the wing beat response of, of those flies. And I looked at how they extend the legs and these kind of things. Huh. And then this was a cute experiment because you could observe the fly, you could manipulate the stimuli and immediately see what difference it makes and, and things like that. Hmm. Great. Well, thanks for speaking with us today, Dr. Friedrich. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to coming to Stanford. Yeah, we're looking forward to having you. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Timothy Ryan, a professor of biochemistry at Weill Cornell Medical College. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org.